world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. And the people say, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Two hours. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted down the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Let's pause there. Have you ever been in a riot? No? Well, we're seeing protests in our own country teetering on the edge of confusion and chaos. And I wonder if actually we could just pause right now and ask for the Lord to work in our land. Can we? Lord, thank you for this great nation that you've blessed us to be home to. Thank you for her peoples, First Nations peoples, peoples like many of us in this room who have come from other places on the planet and we call this place home. God, in the midst of the confusion and the chaos and the various opinions and entrenchments, Lord, we pray for your peace to come. May your wholeness and your shalom be evident in this land and give us wisdom to know how to think, how to talk, how to be neighbors. Help us, oh God, we need you in Jesus' name. Amen. In February 2015, ISIL militants killed 21 orange-clad Coptic Christians on a Mediterranean Sea beach. Do you remember this? It's five years ago. The video uh, released by ISIL called them, these people who were beheaded on the beach, people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church. The leader of, in the video championed this horror as justice against those who had been carrying the cross delusion for a long time. And he pointed his knife out toward the sea and he said, we will conquer Rome, which meant not Rome the city, but the Christianity which Rome represents in the world. A week after that, I was on a beach on the other side of that sea in Turkey. And somewhere over there, as I looked out across the water, brothers in Christ had paid this ultimate sacrifice for naming Jesus Lord as I do. And a few days later, I was in Istanbul with a team of Christian leaders. We were on a terrace overlooking the Hagia Sophia. Have any of you been there? It's a beautiful place. To the right, or sorry, to the left was the Hagia Sophia, the first grand Christian cathedral uh, uh, in history, built in 537 AD. And on the right, 
was the left, the Sultan Ahmed Mosque, the Blue Mosque, which was built in 1619. And this massive square that separates these two buildings are these iconic monuments to the ongoing challenges of being human together. And suddenly there was a growing thunder and marching from the Blue Mosque over here toward the Hagia Sophia and directly below where we were was this large crowd dressed in white, thousands of people waving the flags of Islamic nations. Fists were in the air, chanting going on, and a nervous hush fell over everyone, Muslims included, what was going to happen. The shifting sands and the violence that that part of the world has experienced over the years is still alive. It's unsettling. Humanity is not over this, in case you were wondering. It was not unlike, actually, what was happening to the Apostle Paul and his team and what they were experiencing in Ephesus around 50 AD as the angry Ephesians protested what people of the cross were doing in their great city. Beneath the old city of Istanbul is another monument to the impact of the arrival of the first Christians in Ephesus. You can see this in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 and through 28, where it shows that the Apostle Paul and his groundbreaking team, which included Priscilla and Aquila and a North African named Apollo, how they first brought the good news to Ephesus. And the Basilica Cistern in Istanbul, built in the 6th century around the same time as the Hagia Sophia, supplied the city's water for hundreds of years. And in the far corner of the cistern, you will find this picture. Well, that's the cistern, and you'll find that. It's the granite head of Medusa. The Greek goddess with snake hair, who the myths say could turn you to stone with a gaze, sits on her head, the bottom of a column that for centuries was underwater in the dark recesses of a murky but amazing place. Now, how did she get there? Our team, who had been on that terrace overlooking uh, what was going on on the streets, eventually made our way to the cistern. We were told that these columns, excuse me, had come from ancient Ephesus. As Christianity grew in that part of the world, the temples of the Greek gods eventually crumbled and their columns and stones were redeployed. These columns were brought to Constantinople, as Istanbul was known then, turned upside down and baptized in the waters of what was becoming the leading Christian city of the world. Now, what's significant about that? A cultural shift was being declared. It's what the artisans of Ephesus were rioting about in Acts chapter 19. The people of the cross were upending cities and Ephesus had to stand up. Now, Ephesus prided herself on being a keeper of a cultural and spiritual story. The Greek gods ruled the Roman world of that time of the New Testament, and the Ephesians were not going to let that change. Acts chapter 19, verse 26, described what caused this riot and the dragging of Paul's team to the theater. It says that this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. The crazy idea that this God of the Jews had sent a Messiah for all people who was the hope of all nations was radically disturbing 
to life as it was known. It challenged everything that Roman culture was built upon and, a, and, and saying that that was false and a dead end. And so the financial stratum, the political grandeur, the cultural identity that had endured for centuries in that part of the world, this is what the people of the way, the way of Jesus, were saying had to be reconsidered in light of Jesus Christ, a crucified and risen Jew who somehow was alive and greater than Caesar. So the people of the cross were messing with things. And yet today, in the city of Istanbul, the head of Medusa from the Greek temples of Ephesus sits upside down in the cistern. It's a theological declaration, don't you know? What does Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 say? It's in response to the serpent who deceives the woman who deceives Adam and Eve into sin. And it says this, that God speaks this to the serpent. The head of the serpent will be crushed by the offspring of Eve. One would come who would conquer and expose the deception of Satan. And this is precisely what Demetrius the silversmith was afraid of. The people who followed Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated a message that challenged everything that defined Ephesus. And you know what? Demetrius was absolutely correct. And this remains absolutely true about the gospel of Christ wherever it arrives. Today, we're beginning a journey through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. Thank you. That was not a trick question. Okay. All right. We're into Ephesians, a letter that he wrote from his prison cell in Rome about 10 years after the incident we just read in Acts chapter 19 took place. And uh, there's Ephesus, if you can see the map. Ephesus on the far left-hand side of Turkey there, near what today is called the city of Izmir. Ephesus actually no longer exists. We're calling this series Ephesians Church in the City of Change. And Ephesus was... Absolutely a city of constant change. And aren't we living in a season of rapidly evolving change? How are you doing at keeping up? Ephesus was established as a city in the 11th century BC by the Ionians, one of four major Greek tribes. Her founding was attributed to the Amazons, not the people in Brazil, okay? To the Amazons, the warrior women of Greek mythology, they are the ones credited with beginning the city of Ephesus. And so when Christians first arrived in Ephesus, the city had been around for about 1,200 years, and she had experienced massive shifts. By the 7th century, it would have been overtaken by the Lydian Empire, a non-Greek-speaking people. And it was during that period that the temple, the first great temple to Artemis, was built. And she was the goddess of fertility, the hunt, the moon, and chastity. And the Ephesians rebuilt their great temple after natural disasters, even after arson. Some guy actually burnt the thing down once and they rebuilt it. The temple became a grand marvel. There was a early Roman travel blogger named Pausanias who wrote this, but all cities worship Artemis of Ephesus. 
and individuals hold her in honor above all the gods. The reason, in my view, is the renown of the Amazons as well as the size of the temple surpassing all buildings among men. The second century Greek poet Antipater of Sidon said this, when I saw the sacred house of Artemis that towers to the clouds, the others were placed in the shade and the temple of Artemis became one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Artemis became Ephesus and Ephesus became her. She was Artemis of the Ephesians, the city's protector. Her, their identity, their politics, their commerce, everything was about Artemis. Her worship is said to have included castrated priests. Her statues, like the ones Demetrius and the silversmiths would have produced, included clusters of bull testicles and critters. Young women entered into the service of Artemis at puberty. And if a woman died in childbirth, it was said she had been pierced by Artemis's arrows. Plato called her the stainless maiden. And throughout Asia, she was the mother goddess. In many ways, the equivalent to when you hear in our culture, somebody talking about mother nature. Crowds flocked to Ephesus because of her and her demise was unthinkable, could never happen. When Alexander the Great's generals captured the city of Ephesus in 334 BC, they wanted to move the city to a better location because the harbor of Ephesus was notoriously bad, constantly moving because of the silt. It was a real challenge, so they wanted to move it, but the locals wouldn't cooperate. When the temple was destroyed by a natural disaster, the Ephesians refused outside aid and determined to rebuild it themselves on their own dime. When King Attalus of Pergamon died in 129 BC, he willed the city of Ephesus to the Roman Empire in his will because it was better than being conquered by them. And Rome was the eighth cultural and political change in less than a thousand years for Ephesus. That's a lot. That's a lot. Essentially, Ephesus' political climate changed every 125 years. But Artemis, Artemis, she remained constant. Under Rome, Ephesus grew to its greatest and most prosperous time. And so when Paul and his team arrive in Ephesus and they stay for two years, it says in verse 10 of Acts 19, they were not in a hick town. Do you get it? Ephesus was no hick town. They were in a place thoroughly rooted in empire and a pagan religious tradition that was commodified and the identity of a place. And they were among a proud and steadfastly stubborn people who knew who they were, who knew what they believed and how life was to be lived. They were not looking, the, Eph the Ephesians were not looking for another God to worship. And the town clerk in Acts chapter 19 was declaring what everybody knew in verse 35 of chapter 19. The city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis. This is who we are. Do you feel it? This is who we are. But Ephesus was this city of massive change. But even in the midst of massive change, she clung to something, 
Artemis became Ephesus. Ephesus became her. Like the Eiffel Tower is. Like the CN Tower is. Like the lake and the vineyards are. Kelowna. <laughs> like the World Trade Center is. Oh. Oh. Huh. Ephesus. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Ephesus never thought her temple would crumble. Never thought it could happen. And yet today, in Istanbul, a column from an Ephesian temple is on its head. We are about to be challenged by the Spirit of God through a letter written 1,940 years ago to the fledgling followers of the way in this great city, which is now a tourist attraction that no one calls home. We live in times that are change. Change is us and we are change. Don't you feel it? 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli said, change is inevitable, change is constant. And two centuries later, we feel this even more profoundly. The world is changing so rapidly that recent high school graduates can feel confused by the world their middle school siblings live in. How do you think grandparents feel? We are addicted to change, addicted to it. Whole schools of thought on change management have, have emerged. Business futurist Ray Kurzweil, a business futurist, he says this, he explains that organizations are being forced to confront major change trends shaped by four primary things. He says, globalization from competitors, consumers, and employees that are now everywhere and anywhere. From the gig economy where there's freelancers and independent and temporary professionals transforming who, when, and how gets, get work gets done. By the machine economy where artificial intelligence and robotics are disrupting work processes that were long considered immune to this kind of displacement. To the internet of things where the people, the connection of peoples and devices and intelligence shifts ways of working, expectations, and how we interact. In 2001, Kurzweil predicted, we won't experience 100 years of progress in the 21st century. It will be more like 20,000 years of progress at today's rate. And that makes me feel a little bit like a slug at a greyhound race. <laughs> Do you feel it? Is it any wonder that we're actually waiting for change to change us? Christiana, Christian, Chris, 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 oh my goodness. Christina Aguilera's 2016 song, Change, was written after another U.S. mass shooting. The words are this, waiting for a change to set us free, waiting for the day when you can be you and I can be me, waiting for hope to come around, waiting for the day when hate is lost and love is found, waiting for a change, waiting for a change. What will change us when we're heaping change upon change and it all seems to be getting worse. Like the Ephesians, the only hope is to cling to something. And the Ephesians clung to Artemis and we cling too. We'll cling to an identity, to a politics, to a cause, to something that defines us or even a pain or a wound in our lives that we'll just keep orbiting. 
And that identity, that ideal, even that wound can become an idol. And yet in this time where changes us, we are living, isn't it interesting? We are living in the most, in a most divisive time. A time of great entrenchment, fear, and anger at those who would change us. Isn't that interesting? In reflecting on Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar-winning role as the Joker, just received it last weekend, right? Uh, CNN writer Peniel Joseph said that people seem drawn to how Phoenix was able to depict, and this is the quote, a version of dread as the burden of living in a world that might be characterized as post-joy. The movie depicts life in a post-joy world, and life imitates art, said Oscar Wilde. And we're now giving Oscars to those best able to depict a post-joy world. Is this the change we've waited for? Do you still feel it? Do you feel the confusion of the times, the angst? And while all shakes, we cling like the Ephesians. What are you clinging to? What do you cling to? And we in this room, we may make our anthem that recent song of Paul Balash, I cling to the cross and everything it means. I know it's the only hope there is for saving me, but the only reason any of us could say I cling to the cross is because the gospel of Christ and his cross carried by a people of the cross changed people like those in Ephesus. And this is why this letter of Ephesians written by Paul from prison in Rome is so relevant to us today. The letter to the Ephesians is hope in the city of change. As we discover a couple things, we discover, and we're going to discover this as we move through the book over the next number of weeks, that we discover what it means to be the church, the mysterious people of God in the city of change. And we discover that the church is God's hope for the city when she knows who she is. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who we are together as the body of Christ? Because Ephesus, who, who resisted change so fervently, became a base for the spread of the gospel in a challenging time. In fact, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 talks about seven churches of Asia. The sending base for all of those church plants was Ephesus. And if you look carefully at how the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are named, they start at Ephesus and they follow the Roman road through to the last one. This church became a sending base for the seed of the gospel. And I wonder, could this be true again when the message of cross seems like disruptive foolishness in a culture like ours? to understand Ephesians and to apply it with our lives, we need to understand something so deeply. And those of us in a room like this, coming out of a history and a culture that we're a part of, probably miss this when we look at the New Testament. We need to understand that Ephesians was not, was not written to Christians who had a position of power and privilege. The church in Ephesus was a small fellowship 
proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of Jesus in a city that had fiercely and independently resisted change before and believed it would again. But even the city leaders noticed something about Paul and his team. And this is fascinating and instructive to us when we think about what does it mean to be followers of Jesus today? In Acts chapter 19, verse 31, if you remember while we were reading, the, it's noted that some of the city officials, and in some translations, it'll be called the Asiarchs, they were the power brokers of the area. That some of these, these leading people of the city, were the people who were telling Paul, don't go to the theater. <laughs> don't go. What are they doing? They're protecting him, and he's become a friend. Fascinating. Secondly, in verse 37, we just find that Paul and his team were not Artemis bashers. This is fascinating. It says, as the city clerk who is addressing the riot says this, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Fascinating. They were not railing against the idols. They were proclaiming and demonstrating the way of Jesus, the change that changes. And so if they weren't protesting Artemis, why was Demetrius so convinced that the people of the cross were against their way of life? Because Jesus was elevated as Lord. We need to understand this. There was one God, said this group of the way. There was one faith. There was one baptism and God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians chapter four, verse five. And in that pagan pluralism, a gospel of exclusivity was proclaimed and demonstrated and that was the threat. And yet clearly, Paul and his team did not present it in a threatening way. They came humbly, respectfully, like our Lord who went to the cross. Paul's team lingered, they befriended, they brought the un upending grace and truth of God's plan for all people to the city of change, and this eventually upended Artemis and Medusa. And so Paul writes Ephesians to a group least likely to change such a prominent and stubborn city. This is what we have to understand unless the change that we pray for is actually found in a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And so what change are you waiting for in your life? What are you stubbornly refusing? And this is what, the op this is what makes the opening two verses of Ephesians so powerful. Listen to the way Paul begins his letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Why does that matter? Because Paul was the most unlikely sent one. He once hated the people of the cross and he dragged them off. 
but he is now an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. His life has been swept up in the grand and the mysterious will of God. Paul is of Jesus Christ. Who are you of? Who are we of? And then there's that interesting line, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. To God's holy people. Some of your translations will probably have the word saints in there. To the saints in Ephesus. The word is hagios, hagia Sophia in Istanbul, the name of the building. Holy wisdom, okay? Hagia, holy. These former defenders of Artemis are now called saints. Literally, the word means different ones, distinct from your world. What's Paul saying about them? He's saying people of the way of Jesus and his cross in Ephesus, you are different. You are changed. You are set apart and distinct. You are holy because you are now in Christ in Ephesus. But though different, you are not those fleeing. Do you catch that? They're not fleeing for the hills, trying to run to some other location. You are residents of the metropolis that clings to Artemis. You are the change that God has established in the world because of Christ. You are saints in Ephesus. In all its beauty and brokenness, in all those, among all those who despise you. You and I are in the city of change as those rooted and grounded and faithful in Christ Jesus. Have you come to Christ? Or are you wondering about what that might mean or what it costs? We live in a time of change. We live in the city of change. This place is our home and the first place of the ripples of our callings. And you, my friends, are the saints, the holy ones, the different ones in Christ Jesus and in Kelowna, in the city of change. And so what Paul says in this letter is so profound. It reframes a paradigm for how life in all its assumptions and convictions and realities are perceived in the city of change. Ephesians is good news, quite frankly, that we desperately need to hear in 2020. To be faithful in Christ Jesus is to build your life on solid ground. And so, my friends, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, unmerited favor and delight, and peace, the tying together into wholeness of all that is, is broken and unbound. Grace and peace to you from one God, one Father, one Lord in Christ who is over all and through all and in all, in the city of change, you are his and he is ours. Friends, this is what we're going to be, yeah. This is what we're going to be diving into over the next number of weeks. I would invite you to live in Acts and the Ephesians as you read your scriptures. 
read Ephesians. We're going to unpack it slowly. We're not going to rush through because there is so much stuff in here that is life for those of us who need grace and peace in the city of change. Let's pray. Creator, God our Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the Holy Spirit, the mystery of God who is three in one, we worship you. We praise your name. We lift you high in this city of change. We've sung songs together this morning as a community that have lifted and elevated the same Jesus that Paul and his team were raising in front of Ephesus. Jesus is Lord, the new king of a new way that we need to learn and that our world desperately needs. God, we need you. Forgive us, O oh Lord, where we have made our following of you something it ought not be. Renew us, O oh Lord, by the power of your spirit. Some of us in this room may be feeling the shifts of change. We're feeling unsettled ourselves. We maybe have never given our lives to Christ. We come to you today, humbly bowing the knee, saying, Jesus, in this place, you are Lord. We worship you. Teach us your ways, Heavenly Father. Show us what it means to be the church in this city of change, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said.